0: Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they all told of these things to the 11 and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and that they did not believe in them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. In church, and people that are guests tonight, what we do is after we read God's word, we take a moment to remind ourselves that this is God's word. And so what I want to remind us is as we call and respond, if you're a first-time guest here, what we do is we say, this is the word of the Lord, and then we respond in, praise be to God. And so I'll lead, and you respond. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Be God. Amen. You can have your seat. So I hope you're having a great Easter. Happy Easter. Uh, Easter is the, the central message of Christianity. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that had Christ not been raised from the dead, this would be futile. And the central message of the resurrection, the central message of Easter, therefore, is a message of hope. Easter brings hope to a hopeless world. And it's so important. Uh, Hope is so important because, as C.S. Lewis used to say, we are hope-based creatures. Uh, This week, the world was looking down. We were disappointed. We were hanging our heads as We saw the uh, Notre Dame Cathedral on fire. I, I know that some of you have posted your pictures on Instagram in front of the cathedral. It was really sad and it was really tragic. But you know what was more tragic than that that just happened this weekend? The fact that over 200 followers of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters of ours, were killed brutally in Sri Lanka overnight as they were in a church much like this one, worshiping Jesus and reminding themselves of the resurrection Suffering and pain is not uncommon to Christianity. Christians have been persecuted since the very early beginning, and pain and suffering therefore plays an important role in the life of Christianity. But what allows us to cope with pain and suffering and the frustrations of life, the deceptions of life, is the message of the resurrection. So the disciples of Jesus, as we read in the passage, were also pretty discouraged after the crucifixion. They were looking down. They were hanging their heads. And the text tells us that the women that follow Jesus make their way to the place where Jesus had been buried on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago to anoint the body with spices and to prepare the body for burial Because they could not do that on Friday night when Jesus Christ died. Jesus died right before sunset. And as you know, uh, on Friday night as the sun sets, that is the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath where no work is allowed. So they were doing that now on Sunday as the day arised. And as they get to uh, the tomb, the place where Jesus had been buried, they're surprised. Uh, They're surprised by the fact that the stone, the huge stone that had been placed there, had now been removed. I mean, I don't know what they thought they were going to do if the stone was still there. They still went because women have faith more than men, I think. Um, You know, like they're thinking, you know, what are we going to do if that stone is there? You know, can you help me? I mean, what are they thinking? Um, they didn't have a leverage system or anything like that with them, I would imagine. But So the stone is removed, to their surprise, and they walk into the tomb. And they don't see the body of Jesus laying on the slab where it had been placed. But on top of that, to their surprise, it's, it's, it's getting better, right? There's these two young men, young men dressed in dazzling apparel, whatever that means, right? (laughs) But we know that these men were angels. And they have a conversation with those men that I don't know how long it lasted. The text tells us it was pretty brief. Maybe it was a little longer than that. But what we know is this, that when they left that tomb, they left very differently as they went into the tomb. They went in, hanging their heads in disappointment because their Savior and Messiah had died when they left that tomb. They left joyful and filled with hope because everyone that enters into that tomb by faith comes out on the other side differently. See, the tomb of Jesus is a womb that births us into new life. It gives us a new perspective of life, a life that is fueled by hope. A life that's always looking forward, never looking down, always looking forward, regardless of the circumstances. So my hope here tonight, as you reflect on the accounts of this passage, is that you would leave this place in a very different fashion that you walked in. I don't know what's making you hang your head. I don't know what makes you look down today. But because of the resurrection, anything is possible, and you can raise your head and look forward. But listen, before you look forward, you must learn to look back, and you must learn then to look in. First, you must learn to look back. Look at the passage. So when the women walk in, and they're greeted by these men with dazzling apparel, and they're now frightened because they're not used to seeing stuff like that, they're not used to seeing... Uh, angels and they 're not used to seeing men dressed in dazzling apparel right in the middle east, so they're, so they 're shocked, and the angels perceive their shock and their fear, and the angels ask them this question, "Why do you look for the living among the dead and they 're still confused, and so uh, we read that in verse six, the angels uh, speak to the women and saying He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. The angels are saying to the woman, remember the teachings of Jesus, all the things that Jesus had instructed you and had told you. You have spent years with him and just recently, He told you that this would happen and this took place. Look back. Look back and remember. You know, what Jesus was doing during his public ministry, those three years that he spent with his followers, the content of his teaching to his disciples was to go through the Bible. And what they had back then was the Old Testament that we have today. The New Testament was, no, uh, was not uh, yet in existence, but they had the Old Testament. And what Jesus would do is he would go through the Old Testament prophecies that prophesied the coming of the Messiah. And he would apply those prophecies to himself. Do you know that there are four over 400 prophecies that talk about the coming of the Messiah in exact detail? And Jesus is saying, look, Not only am I this Messiah that has come and is dwelling among you, but I will die as the scriptures have prophesied, and I will rise from the dead as the scriptures also have prophesied. Throughout his time with his disciples, he was constantly showing himself in the context of the Old Testament scripture and ascribing to himself, this is very important, divinity. He was telling them that he was the son of God, come from God, and that he was God as well. Some people say, well, I never heard Jesus or I never read Jesus talk about that in the gospel accounts. Well, in John 17, he would say things like, my father and I are one. You know, Jewish people, uh, they open worship with the Shema, Oh, here is Israel. The Lord, your God is one. And Jesus said, no, me and my father are one. I'm one with this God that you worship. In Matthew 16, for instance, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask Jesus, who are you? People are saying different things about you. And then Jesus turns the question back to Peter and says, Peter, who do you say that I am? Remember Peter's response? He takes a couple seconds, I'm thinking, and then he goes back and he responds and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus looks at Peter and says, very well, for it hasn't been flesh and blood that has revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Jesus saying, I am the hope of the world that has come and arrived. I am God in the flesh. And the angels are, in essence, Saying this to the women, if you had believed in what he has taught, if you believe in what he has said about himself, if he is God, why would you expect anything less than this empty tomb? You see? And I want to turn now this question to you because I think in this day, it's very important that we ask this question ourselves. This is the fundamental question of Christianity. Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he was. If you were to look back at his teachings, if you were to look back at his words, do you believe that he is who he said he was? A couple of years ago, uh, Bono, the lead singer for U2, was interviewed about his faith. And uh, they asked Bono, do you believe in the Jesus that evangelical Christians teach or speak about or speak of? And he said, you know, there are people out there that um, present Jesus as a teacher, as a prophet, but I believe in Jesus as God. And, And he says there's no middle road between those two assumptions. He says this in the quote, when people say, good teacher, prophet, really nice guy, this is not how Jesus thought of himself. So you're left with a challenge in that, which is either Jesus was who he said he was or a complete and utter nutcase. And I believe that Jesus was, you know the Son of God. So is Jesus who he said he was? Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he was? And if, if, if it's yes, why would you expect anything less than the resurrection? Now I know that many of you are not there yet. This is a question of faith. And that's okay. You can journey with us. And that's why I think it's also important that not not only you look back, but you also look in, look in. So the the women return, right? So the women return from that encounter with the angels. And they report to the rest of the disciples that were in the surroundings of the crucifixion and the burial site, not very far from there. And tell the disciples everything that they had heard and seen. And what's interesting, what we read here in the, in the, in the passage, I don't know if you, if you noticed this, and that is the fact that the disciples, when they hear the women reporting on what they had seen and heard, they completely discredit it. They shut it down. Uh, we read in verse uh, 10 and 11 Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Now, this brings up a very important point. You know what it is? The same barriers that they had for believing in Jesus are the same barriers and obstacles that we have today for believing in Jesus and in the historical resurrection you know, some of us like to say, well, people back then used to believe in miracles. They were a lot more primitive. Their religion was primitive. And they didn't have science like we have today. Of course, today we can't believe in the resurrection. This is outrageous because of all the things we know. And, and again, think about this. They are questioning that fact as well, okay? I want to rebuke you for chronological snobbery, okay? The IQ levels have not gone down through the years, The same barriers that they had are the barriers that you have today in believing in the resurrection. They're like, this is idle tale. They're tripping. These women are tripping. Right? Except for Peter. Peter is humble enough to hear that. And he's probably saying to himself, I know we shouldn't trust the testimony of women. Because actually that was you may shock you it was a, it was it was part of their culture women's testimonies were not credible in any court and so peter's probably yeah i know but that's intriguing that's interesting and we read in verse 12 the following look but peter rose and ran to the tomb stooping and looking in so peter gets up says i'm going to find this out for myself and he goes to the place where Jesus had been buried, he stoops in and he looks in. See, Peter has that humility. Peter has that open-mindedness to look underneath the hood himself and figure out whether this had happened or not. A lot of people accuse Christians of being closed-minded. Would you just be open-minded and not take other people's beliefs other people's views, others people, other people's opinions as your own. There are a lot of people that discredit Christianity because a lot of smart people discredit Christianity. And there's a lot of people that believe in Christianity because there's a lot of smart people that credit and believe in Christianity. And you have people on both sides that are real smart. But I want to challenge you to be open-minded and explore it yourself. Look in. You know, in fact... The word here for looking in is a Greek word that means to look analytically. So here's Peter, and I'm imagining Peter, he stoops in, and he looks at the slab where the body had been laid, and all he sees are linen cloths folded. And he's probably saying to himself, he's analyzing, he's saying, oh, man, if these were grave diggers, grave robbers, why would have they taken a naked body, and, and, and why would have they left the linen cloths and folded. You know, thieves are not that nice. And and then, now what if it was one of us, like one of the disciples that did this? Why would they drag a naked body through the streets of Jerusalem? That would be awkward and weird as well. He's looking at it analytically, as you look when you're buying a used car, right? You're like, huh, oh, let me th- let me think. Let me see if this car is good. And you're looking inside and you're asked to pop the hood and It's kind of like when you're trying to look for a a, a spousal prospect, you know, that analytical look. You're like, hmm, would this be a good husband or wife? Ah, right? You're looking analytically. And that's what you must do with Christianity as well. It invites you to do that. There is space for that. Christianity does not reject the doubters. I believe that doubt is on the other side of faith, and so doubt is welcome. And I want you to look at the resurrection as a historical account because it matters. A lot of people discredit Christianity because of what Christians do and uh, some Christians say. And you maybe have a problem uh, with uh, some of the Christian ethics. Don't look at any of these things now to determine whether you're going to credit or discredit Christianity. Look whether the resurrection happened or not because if it didn't, nothing matters. But if it has happen, then everything changes. So let me give you some evidences for the resurrection here tonight, although I'm not going to give you all of them, but I'll I'll give you a few. First, look at the first eyewitnesses. Look at the women. We have already said that uh, the testimony of women were not credible back in those days see a lot of people accuse Christianity of being a fabricated religion uh, of a religion that has uh, been created by the followers of Jesus in order to gain proeminence and power after the death of Jesus they wanted to take advantage of the momentum and the following and wanted to attract that following to themselves and hit Uh, Literary critics will tell you that, Christians and non-Christians across the board throughout the centuries will tell you that anyone trying to build a story that was credible in order to gain proeminence and power would have never used women as the first eyewitnesses of that miracle. That's just outlandish and crazy and dumb at the same time. So think about that. The only reason why it's here, it's because it happened this way. Secondly, look at all the other eyewitnesses to the resurrection. The women were not the only ones that were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. The 12 apostles, including Peter, were not the only ones who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. The Bible says that over 500 people were able to see, to speak, to eat, and to touch the resurrected Christ after the resurrection. The resurrected Christ spent 40 days in his resurrected form with his disciples before he ascended into heaven. So much so that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 the following He says, uh, I passed on to you what was most important, and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. It says it twice, looking back, right, what we talked about. And he was seen by Peter, and and then by the 12, okay? And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Think about that. He's saying, you know, this is probably written uh, 20 years after the resurrection, and the apostle Paul is saying, for those of you that doubt, there's still people alive, many of them are alive out of those 500, that saw and spoke and ate with the living Christ. Here is their address. Go to their house and ask them yourselves. So we're not talking here about, you know, 12 disciples in a spiritual trance, having a delusion, you know, that this Christ had appeared. No, 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 no. Over 40 days, over 500 people saw it. And these people that had a contact with the living Christ, both who were eyewitnesses or became witnesses through eyewitnesses, had their lives profoundly impacted and changed by this resurrected Christ. You know, Christianity has over 2,000 years And in these 2,000 years, there are many stories, stories, every day, stories in this community, stories in every Christian community of people that have profoundly changed their lives because of the power of the resurrection. I know that some of you here have experienced profound changes in your life because of the power of the resurrection that has come into your life. These people were changed. They were tax collectors and prostitutes and, you know, religious Pharisees. And they were now the most generous, loving people, willing not only to give their lives for their faith, but to give their lives for the sake of others as well. Christianity profoundly changed the world. The Western world is the way it is today because of Christianity. The reason why our culture values justice and humility is because of Christianity. It's the influence of Christianity in the West. Those were not desired values back then. Look at the change that these people experience look at the life of the apostle peter the apostle peter is one of the ones that can present his life as a life that has been profoundly changed by the resurrection of christ if you read the gospel accounts and you read about peter there's the peter before the resurrection peter after the resurrection who is peter before the resurrection he's a fearful uneducated a man that lacked control disruptive a coward He betrayed Jesus, remember? After the resurrection, Peter is a courageous leader. He is the main leader for the early church, taking the gospel to Rome, the capital of the empire, challenging the empire with the kingdom of Christ. And Peter dies boldly for his faith. He dies crucified upside down. Did you know that? Which to me is another evidence of the veracity of the resurrection, A lot of people say, well, these followers of Jesus that fabricated this story, right, went on to gain all this preeminence and power. Yeah, but they all died horrible deaths because of their faith. Would you die for something that you knew was a lie? For a lie that you knew it was a lie. At that very moment when they said, are you really sure that you will not recant this faith? If you knew it was a lie, you would say, wait a minute, let me think about it. (laughs) Like Galileo Galilei, right? When he was brought before uh, the Roman courts because he said that the the earth uh, was round, they said, are you really sure that the earth is round? He says, no, it's flat. (laughs) It was true. And he still... Love this life more than the truth. But you wouldn't die for a lie if you knew it was a lie. Now, there are many other evidences and facts about the resurrection, and I'm not going to spend my time here doing that with you tonight. But here's what I want from you I want you to keep an open mind, I want you to be willing to look under the hood. And I want to tell you that we are a community of people that welcome people like you that question and doubt. And we promise to walk alongside you and do our best to answer all your questions. But keep an open mind, will you? Look in, look in. Not only just look back, but look in. And if you're able to look back and look in, you'll surely enough find yourself always looking forward. See, the most powerful thing about this, uh, this account is how it ends How does it end? Well, we read that um, after Peter ran to the tomb and he stooped in and looked in, the text tells us that he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, Now, think about this. The time that he spent in the tomb, nothing had happened. The only thing that happened was him arguing with himself about what he was seeing. Nothing had happened. And he leaves the tomb marveling. Peter hasn't seen the resurrected Christ yet, nor have the women seen the resurrected Christ yet, but they're already profoundly changed. And here's what I think is going on in Peter's head as he's walking home after looking at a slab with linen cloths. He is saying to himself, my, 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 what if this is true? What if he was right? And what if he really did rise from the dead? If that happened, then everything changes. Peter is saying to himself, that's what I want to say to you. Would you consider the possibility that if this is really true, then everything changes? Then nothing is impossible because a powerful A powerful source of life has been unleashed into the world starting on that day. It will profoundly change your life if this is true. And if you orient your life around this, you will be changed forever. You know why? Because the resurrection will assure you that your sins, in fact, have been dealt with and that you have been forgiven. You no longer have to live life trying to pay your sins off. You have been forgiven. So on Friday, uh, some of us were at our Key Biscayne campus, and uh, we uh, were celebrating Good Friday. And on Good Friday, we reminded ourselves of the sufferings of Christ on that Friday that culminated on the cross. And one of the things that I said was that, you know, Christ died on the cross in our place to forgive us of our sins. Now think about this. How can you be assured that you have in fact been forgiven from your sins by the death of Christ on the cross? See, had the resurrection not happened, you would not be able to be assured of that. If someone is condemned for a crime, And they're sentenced. The only way that you know that justice has been satisfied is when they fulfill their time, right? When they do their time. The day they walk out of that jail, they said, I've done my time. I paid for my crimes. The only way we know that we are for sure forgiven, our past, our present, and our future sins, is because Jesus walked out of that grave that Sunday morning. And when he walked out of that grave, we walked out with him. We are cleansed. We are forgiven. We are a new creation. That's the power of the resurrection at work. And you know what's, what's better, what gets better about the power of the resurrection? Is that it promises. It gives you comfort in the present. It gives you comfort in the present. That things can be rebuilt, like churches can be rebuilt. And that the people that we love that have died... Like the 200-plus believers that died on that terrorist attack overnight, we believe that there's hope because bodies will rise because of the resurrection. And the resurrection is no consolation for the life we have lived. The resurrection is the restoration of everything we lost in this life. I don't like consolation prizes. You go to a restaurant, the food is bad, and, the, and here comes the manager. Hey, I'm sorry, here's a dessert for a consolation. I want no consolation. I want restoration. And the resurrection promises restoration. We will get back everything that we lost. If you've been a victim of injustice, if you've been a victim of abuse, and you've seen your perpetrators walk away not being punished, not being dealt with, if you've lost a loved one in this life, the resurrection promises that you will get everything back, that just one day will be done because the resurrected Christ will return to put all things to right. And the resurrection gives us purpose. Millennials want to do things in life and work and find relationships that help bring purpose and meaning in life. And resurrection gives you that. In the cover of your bulletin, there's a, a quote by NT Wright. And Tom, you, uh, thank you. He, he says this look, When Jesus rose again, God's whole new creation emerged from the tomb, introducing a world full of new potential and possibilities. Indeed, precisely because part of that new possibility is for human beings themselves to be revived and renewed. The resurrection of Jesus doesn't leave us as passive, helpless spectators. We find ourselves lifted up, set on our feet, given new breath in our lungs, and commissioned to go and make new creation happen in the world. It gives you purpose like nothing else. You want to find purpose, experience the resurrection. It says that because of its power, everything is possible. Have you thought about what the Apostle Paul one time said in Romans 8:11, he said this. He said, um, "If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you." Have you thought about this? Look, this is crazy and amazing. The same spirit that got into that grave that Sunday morning and said, Jesus, it's time to wake up, is the same spirit that lives inside of us. You know what that means? That the whole power of God of unraveling sin and destruction in the world lives inside of us and is moving in us so that new creation can happen through us. That means that there's eternal hope for everything and anything. Nothing is lost ultimately. Anything can be reversed. God can can save anyone. God can redeem any life in any situation. And you better believe that. How would you not, like knowing this, think about the possibility, right? The why. Man, what if? Why would you reject this lifestyle that's fueled by hope? Why would you want to do that? No one in their right mind should reject this. It's crazy. And this is what Christ has brought and what he's proposing for you tonight. This is the best life that you can live. The life that is fueled by the resurrection power. Hey. Stop looking down tonight. Look forward. Look forward. Because he is risen. He is risen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the power of the resurrection that has been unleashed in the world through Jesus Christ. We're thankful that many of us have experienced this power. And I'm I'm aware that there are some of us here tonight that have not yet experienced this power. But I pray that they would. Uh, Father, visit us tonight in a powerful way. Uh, Father, for those who are closed-minded, may you open their minds. Father, for the hearts that are shut to this message, may you open these hearts to receive and to embrace this new proposal of life that you are making to them, a life that's fueled by hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, church. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Felipe.